Hey, also, uh, Evan, thank you for all that cold brew you've been bringing in. Did you have enough today? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. So anyway, thank you guys. He gets up early. He and Kelsey, they, uh, yeah, give it up for Evan. That's, that's pretty nice. Um, every week gets up and makes that stuff. And uh, so thank you for that. Well, um, pretty excited to, to keep walking through the book of John. If you're new to us, what we do here is we teach, uh, we teach th- verse by verse through scripture. And so uh, if you would go ahead and turn in your book. Uh, in your Bible to the book of John, John chapter 6, or go ahead and uh, turn your Bible on to John chapter 6. I went to bed last night and I thought, well, you know, if I blow this, I'm just not really, you know, you, you can't be um, a minister, preach this, and not just get excited about what, what God's doing. Because this scripture is, um, it's remarkable, it records a miracle. So what's interesting about this is there are four Gospels. Uh, they all tell different angles of a story. In this particular case, this is the only miracle during Jesus' ministry that's told in all four Gospels. This is it. This is the only one. And so these particular um, verses are profound in the fact that there's... We're going to stop. We're going to look at a couple of words and we'll explain some things. It may be too... Um, it may not be needed for a deep study, but you know, for any, whatever it's worth, we'll just kind of stop there. So let me do this. Let me pray for me, and then we'll just get moving. Lord Jesus, Father, remove me from it as being a distraction. God, speak through me, please. God, remove any sense of um, urgency and other matters we could have. Father, we're focused on your word, a word that's meant not just uh, for a study of history, the Lord that is meant for our life. Something that can we can peel back and see that's for our walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, we look at John chapter 6, verse 1, reads this way. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So, to catch you up to speed, whenever you see uh, Jesus went away, I did a sermon one time called Along the Way. Uh, and that was how many miracles I saw in Scripture that happened along the way. Jesus going through the wheat fields, healed somebody. Jesus going to this place, healed somebody. There's two interesting things. There's along the way, and then there's he went away. Whenever Jesus went away, it was trying to get away from his ministry. So some of you heard the book Boundaries, the study of boundaries, you know, where you identify this is how I say no, this is how I now stop saying yes, these are the boundaries I identify in my life. In this particular case, Jesus was exhausted from ministry. Now you have to picture this. Here's Jesus that is, a, that is a, he's God in flesh, right? Here's the, here's the son of God. He can perform miracles. We're going to see later he can stop the wind, he can calm the seas, but he gets tired, you see later, we saw in, um, uh, with the Samaritan woman, he was thirsty. We're going to see he's in agony on a cross. Jesus is experiencing what we experience in a human body. And, and so he's taking this divine nature, put it in a human body. And so he's tired. He's beat up. People, remember, people are trying to kill him. And those two words, I didn't highlight the first two, but after this, greatest understatement I think ever written. After this, after he's been pursued, he's been wanted to be executed by the Jews. Whenever John says the Jews, he's talking, even though John's a Jew, he's talking about the arch enemy of Jesus. John the Baptist has now been executed. So this movement 
uh, is actively trying to be destroyed by the religious um, order of the day. And so Jesus wants to get away. And what he's about to get away from, he's about to leave one storm and walk into another one. So Jesus, in an attempt to get away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Let me stop you right here. Just if you ever want some kind of, if there's some kind of interesting, like a tidbit, I would say this is interesting. There's a lot of people who, who, who I mean, they try to debunk the faith or debunk Christianity. Uh, they'll, they'll write books and they'll, you know, hundreds of years ago, there was an attempt to debunk Christianity based on a lot of archaeological inadequacies and and geographical errors. And then what's been interesting is throughout time, geographical studies and archaeological studies have affirmed scripture. This is one. Because when John wrote this, he writes in here, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which he mentioned, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It was, um, the Sea of Tiberias was, when he wrote it, it was, it was named after Caesar Tiberius. And, and what happened is eventually that name went to a lake. And so they said, so the people were attacking and said, no, it wasn't even, the, that wasn't even the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is a lake. And then sure enough, we found out that at one, at one time uh, the, they were connected and that was done through, anyway, incredible studies. So it was kind of neat. So just one little side bit there. Verse two reads, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, a lot of us who grew up a lot of you who grew up in children's ministries and you, you had pictures of what things look like. And this is not one of those cases where I'm just, you know, doggoning all like, you know, flannel graphs and color pictures of what scripture looked like being unfolded. But I think it's very important to understand Noah's Ark did not look like Noah's Ark in a children's book, right? You can't even fathom it. This is another picture. You see Jesus speaking to these people when it says Jesus is feeding the 5,000. And if we're not careful, there's this picture of Jesus speaking to this very patient crowd on the bank of a body of water, eagerly leaning in and eagerly listening. And this loud, this large crowd followed him to hear his teachings. Not true. And not at all. This large crowd was not following him in land. Remember, he was trying to escape one large crowd. He gets there. But before he gets to this particular place, they're following him on the bank of a lake. So we're going to see later, and we see in the other Gospels, that there were 5,000 men counted. The reason I say men, this is not some chauvinistic counting measure of like, well, there's, you know, there's so many men here. And that represents the head of the family. No, there's a reason you're going to see later why the men were noted. It, it's a huge, critical part of this passage. These, there are 5,000 men, so we believe there's 5,000 women. You bring in men, you bring in women, you have children. Now we believe an estimate, a conservative estimate would be twenty to 25,000 people. This is Amelie Arena, empty and out, championship game, packed crowd, and they are following the boat along the lake. So they're walking, so you get a picture, this is not the landmass movement, this is Jesus going on a boat, and all along shore are people shouting out and yelling out and following along the shoreline. Jesus is probably thinking, well, I'm not getting away here. So he banks. He comes in and he banks there on, on, the, on the shore. In G, verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat down with his disciples. We see in the other Gospels, uh, other gospels he did this so he could review and recap with his disciples. Jesus was coming in 
alone or paying a ferry uh, uh, service to bring him over. We don't know, but Jesus is not with his disciples. The disciples come over. They've been on a training mission. They have been involved in incredible ministry. So he's gathering together. He, Jesus is thinking, man, if I, you know, there's this huge crowd pushing in. I just want to recap with my disciples and see how things went. So Jesus, try, he sits down with his disciples. And then verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Add this to the crowd. It's a holiday weekend. There's a lot of people in town, a lot of people visiting, so the numbers have swelled. It's in, 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 on top of this, now I want you to picture this. It's in one of the Gospels, I can't, which one, forget, I can't remember which one, but one of them mentioned that this was a desolate place. It was very specific. This, this disciple, is writing, this author is writing and saying, this, was, this place was desolate. This was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there is nothing in this area. And now it's getting dark. Evening's coming in. The sun's down. And all of a sudden we start to see the disciples and the other gospels especially start to panic. One of them approaches Jesus and says, Jesus, we need to, we need to send the people home. One of them compassionately comes up and says, Jesus, there's, there's nothing we can give them. They're, they need to get home. That you don't want to travel at night. Now, I want you to picture, as the light is beginning to leave, Jesus does something remarkable. In verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes, then seeing a large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, and by the way, if you think this is sarcasm, you're absolutely right. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? The reason we can say that's sarcastically given over to Philip is because Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. And he knew, as well as anybody, not only was there no place to eat, there was no place to buy anything because we knew it was a desolate place. They didn't have any money. Jesus, many times over, referenced the fact that, you know, look, we're not carrying anything. And the most expensive thing they would have on them but sometimes would be a dagger or a cloak. And so... Um, why did he say this? Look at verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. So Jesus saw this crowd. Now keep in mind, Jesus is watching this crowd. He knew, he knew what he was going to have to do. And he knew what he would do. Verse 7. Philip answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them to get a little. Basically what he's saying, the wages of the day, you were paid a denarii a day on average. He's basically saying there's 200 days wages, eight months of wages are not going to even get these people a bite. So Philip is still not gathering the sarcasm here. Philip's panicking. That's what happens when you begin to panic, you get confused, and you get worried. You don't see the humor in anything. You don't see, the, you don't see the, anything other than the objectivity of what are we going to do? And so in this case, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Now, something about Andrew. Andrew is not one of what we would call one of the, uh, the guidestone disciples that you're going to hear a lot about. But one common thread of Andrew is he's a people person. Andrew is constantly engaged with people. All the time. Andrew, if you ever, you watch through, reading through Andrew in the Bible. And, and you see Andrew found this person, went after this person. Andrew, keep in mind, Philip's up there 
trying to reason with, with Jesus going, what are we going to do? How, are we gonna, how do we feed these people? What does Andrew do? Goes out in the crowd. I don't know what his objective was other than the, he brings a boy back with food, but you know he's asking for people, like, do you have any food? Do you have any food? Do you have anything to give? He comes back and he says, I've got, here's this little boy and all he has is five barley loaves and two fish. It's an ill-prepared crowd. Nobody prepared to be gone to be gone that long. You prepare, by the way, your meals. This is not like modern-day 2018 meal prep that everybody Instagrams all over the place, right? This is you had to fight for a meal. You either were a farmer, and by the way, you probably only farmed a certain crop or a certain type of animal, which means you, meant you bartered, or you were a tradesperson, and a tradesperson, which meant. You had to earn every nickel you had in order to buy and barter from food from other people. This was a hard life and hard society. The people knew what it meant to venture away from their home without food. They're not going to have money. They're not going to have the same deal they would have. It, it, this is like getting a flat tire in a small town you know, somewhere. You, know, you, you don't know your, your mechanic. You don't know where to go. These people probably did not expect to be gone this long. But what's happening? When you start to see lame people walking and blind people seeing and dead rising, you kind of forget your stomach. And these people are in a, they, and by the way, you're going to see later, they have an agenda. So Andrew comes back and he says, here are these, uh, by the, this is the only gospel that mentions barley, by the way. Five barley loaves. Those of you who are Civil War uh, historians or who want to be like me, you, you see the soldiers carrying what they call hardtack. It's a piece of dough that's just shrunk down, shrunk down, baked in, in the sun typically a lot of times. And you take this hardtack and you can't, you knock it against the, 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 a rock and it sounds like a hammer. And what they would do is you would dip this in, in, in hot water and that's how you would eat it. So you would typically, that's how you would eat on this. Otherwise you'd break your teeth. And so he comes up with these five barley loaves. Barley, by the way, was the only, this was not something Caesar would eat. Barley was meant for the poorer classes. This, was, this kid was poor. It brings up two fish that were probably either salted and brined or they were pickled. So it brings up these two pickled fish, five barley loaves. What Jesus here says uh, in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So the reason we encourage you to read scripture daily is so you can, it, it's fun when you, when you start to bounce around and see the different, um, different styles of writing. So one gospel writer, he's going to say, it's springtime. John doesn't say it's springtime. How do we know it's springtime? Because he says things like this, now there is much grass. In the winter is when it rained. In the spring is when the grass came up. By the time you hit May, the grass was gone, it was burnt, it was done, it was barren. So we know it's spring, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. And if you're reading this and you're thinking, why are they sitting the men down? I mean, is this one of those old school practices where bring the men up, all you pregnant women stand in the back and get ready to serve? No. This agenda in this crowd of these people is being directed by, are you ready for this? This is critical, by these men. This is not an innocent crowd walking around praising Jesus and singing Hosanna like we did. This is a want-to-be guerrilla force who were wanting a leader. 
what they are seeing, this is akin to William Wallace going through Scotland and villages piling out and opening up and saying, I want to serve. These people, we know by the interaction here, the men have pushed themselves down towards the lake. They have pushed themselves around. They're in the front and they're obviously shouting. They're obviously doing something to gain the attention of Jesus. And Jesus says this, I want the men to sit down. The men were making some sort of noise. They were obviously uh, uh, moving to the place where Jesus knew they were directing this entire order or disorder. You, they're willing and they're able to serve a leader and they want a leader. They want someone. They've been told this Messiah would come. They're hungry for a Messiah. But remember, their view of a Messiah was somebody who's going to take over the Roman army. And regain Israel back to the days of King David. Have a mighty army again. This was a political and agenda driven force of men. As well as interested people and people curious to see what happens when a dead person gets up and walks. But you cannot make this next prayer up. You cannot imagine, we can't imagine the thought of the disciples when Jesus does what he does in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and we need given thanks he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. What's interesting about this is Jesus gives thanks, but he, the event hasn't happened. We sit down to give thanks. What? We're grateful for the meal. You know, grateful for this meal in front of us. Jesus looks at this and says, I give thanks for this meal. You, I guarantee you, these were opened-eyes disciples looking at each other thinking, are you kidding me? And you all know you've done that. You'll sit around, somebody starts praying for Ethiopia while you're at you know, um, the restaurant, and you're thinking, come on. You're looking at your buddies like, rush this guy along. This is people looking at Jesus, and they're looking at each other thinking, is he really giving thanks for five loaves of barley bread, five crackers, and two fish? And he just sat 5,000 men expecting something down on the ground and the families in back of them. He goes to, he gives thanks and then uh, they started distributing the food. In the other gospels we see where they divided the men in groups and they divided the families in groups. He said, so the disciples went out and said, all right, 50 of you here, another group of you here. We want to put you in another group here. And so they began to give the food out. But then catch this, as much as they wanted. The reason I highlighted that is because oftentimes in, there was a, a period of time in my life, I don't know why I was intrigued by people who would try to peg holes in Christianity. And I would try to read their arguments and then kind of study what those arguments are. And it was one of my mentors who did that. It was really fascinating because this is one of those where people would say, no, there's no way he fed this many people. People would say, did he really feed 5,000? You really think he fed 5,000? I mean, no, I think he really fed 20,000, if that's what you mean. See, some people would say, no, no, no. He, he, in this book I read, it said, no, he had, it, was, it, was a, it was a lesson in sharing. He brought up the boy's meal and he said, here, I want to show you what it's like that this boy's willing to share these two fishes and these five loaves of bread. What a spirit of a young man. And everybody applauds and everybody shares whatever they have in their pockets and go away. There's no way you're going to share when the people ate as much as they wanted. You know what happens when you share? 
You're like, no, you have that piece of pizza. No, you have that piece of pizza. No, you have that. You do that. It, this is, you don't eat as much as you want. And so they ate as much as they want. And so now if you're walking in here today and you have a friend and all the, all the time you're welcome here. If, you're a, if you walk in and don't have any faith at all, you're welcome here. This is one of those days when you walk in and you're thinking, besides money, please preacher, do not, do not preach the one where Jesus makes two fish, five loaves of bread into something, a banquet that feeds all these people. Yes, the preacher is telling you that thousands of people were fed off of the basis of two fish, five loaves of bread. Jesus creates something amazing. So he, cre- cre- he when he says that prayer, keep in mind, he's not just doing an obligatory prayer of grace. He is creating a meal. He is creating fish that never swam in a fallen world's lake. He is creating bread that is beyond unleavened and gluten-free. He is is creating a meal that these people would tell their children about. Now, I know we all love food, but there's probably not a meal you're going to tell your grandchildren about. Like, you won't believe this meal. This was a meal you did it. Jesus creates this meal and feeds these people. And it's remarkable. And here in verse 12, And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So not only was there stuff left over, but did you catch this? They had eaten their fill. Specifically written in the same manner in which it was written of farmers that spoke about how animals would react when when they foddered up. Foddered up, if you've ever had a cow or a goat, something happens with, it's interesting to watch. You'll watch them dig into the trough the cow eats, the horse eats, and it's not like they just gradually just, well, I'm done. They shake their head, they feel, they don't, their stomachs fill up, but they don't know it, and then eventually their jowls fill up, they swell up, they shake their head like, whoa, I've had too much, I can't fit anything else, and walked away. That's called foddered up. The vernacular in which this was written is saying, and when the people had foddered up, I mean, they are full. This is not just a delicious meal. This is not just, oh wow, we got a little nidbit or something. This, they kept eating and eating and eating till the people could not eat anymore. And they, what? There were leftover fragments. Verse 13, so they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now stop right here. Uh, How many disciples are there? Not a trick question. There you go, 12. Twelve baskets. This is not an awesome miracle. This is a perfectly awesome miracle. Oh, by the way, there's twelve baskets. Grab one. Bring it along. We got you lunch for tomorrow. And probably the next day and the next day. Jesus, as a matter of fact, would reference this verse later when he's looking at his disciples and he's discouraged with them. And he says, why, why are you so discouraged? You can't remember this. You can't remember this. You can't remember this happened. Oh, by the way, don't you remember the time I filled the baskets for you? So he's actually going to bring that up later. Verse 14. When the people saw this sign, what they had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Okay. This is the area I want to hunker down in and tell you about what happens when the, why the men were segregated in the writing of the story. This indeed is a prophet who has come into the world. John is not saying, you see, catch the explanation point? John is not going, man, this is the prophet. He's recording the reaction of the mob and the crowd who've now been full 
got their energy going, and now they are starting to chant and starting to shout, and they're saying, this is the prophet, this is the prophet. This is the, these 5,000 men that Jesus said, sit the 5,000 men down, have now risen up into a force, and they're starting to chant, and you're the one we want, you're the one we want. Jesus perceives this. In one of the other Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus saw these men as a sheep without a shepherd. There's a big difference, though, in having a congregation without a pastor or an army without a general. This is the latter. This is a wannabe army looking for a general, looking for someone to take them, looking to someone to take them to the next place. They start chanting. How do we know this? Because look at the next verse, 15. Perceiving they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The hilarity of that, by the way, would have been great to watch people try by force to grab him to make him king. I can't imagine what that would have looked like. But nonetheless, Jesus perceives they're trying to take him by force. This crowd has now said, not only are you amazing, but it's your right, you're the prophet, your goal is to save us as Israel. Remember, Israel wanted the garrisons turned over. This is what they were looking for. It protects the apostasy of the church. The church, the Pharisees can still walk around puffed up. The priests can still say what they do. And the Romans can go away. It's a Messiah that we want. Jesus knew their hearts. You know, Jesus knew your heart when you walked in that door. This isn't a preacher looking at you and saying... What is your heart? Now, let me tell you, I never want you to feel like a fake when you walk in this place. Don't, I mean, shame on me if I ever say, did you walk in here with a strong courage and a desire to read God's word? Let me tell you, you may be walking here going, I'm coming in in crumbs and I'm barely able to get here. I'm emotionally a wreck. I'm spiritually flat. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here. Don't ever let that religion get pushed on you. Why? That's a crowd wanting a Messiah and wanting a religion and wanting that, that that's not real that's not what Christ desires so you walk in here I don't know your heart you could fool me you could you could walk in here and I could think you are you have a walk so strong but you know what your walk is you know who you are you know if you're a believer you know if you're not a believer you know who else knows that he knows that and what did he do did he chew him out on the bank of the body of water? He had compassion on them. So you walk in here and say, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know how I screwed up last week. You don't know what's going on. You walked into a service. We point you to a cross. To a God that says, I have compassion on you. What a God. So Jesus perceiving this, um, he sees this army this is warning this general and then he leaves he gets away he goes away the, the, the reason we love for you to again get in the habit of reading the word of God and you start to see how these pictures unfold look at verse 16 when evening came his disciples went out to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. 
and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. But they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I'll stop right here. Go back to the next, to a previous verse if you could. Do you see it is I? That's not some prophetic equal to um, I am. That's not an I am. Just some people say it is I. You know, he said it's me. <laughs> so it's not much to do in those words. But I will say this. If you want to grab the other aspects of these gospels, read them. This is where Peter walks on the water. John doesn't mention that. John's very cut and dry. If you were a Greek student, you would see Luke... His writings are, you know, the writing of which is going on there is like uh, you would take a collegiate level of Greek to read that. John, they say it's an eighth, third to eighth grade level, whatever third to eighth grade means. But anyway, third to eighth grade level, a much simpler aspect. But don't believe John was a dummy. All scripture is God breathed. Second Timothy three sixteen. Remember that for all scripture is God breathed. And this is a great case where John's just cutting to the point, cutting to the chase. He's simply saying, "Oh yeah, we had rough seas." Um, the boat was over here, we're afraid, and then we're fine. And John moves on. The other Gospels are like, Peter stands up, freaks out, is it a ghost? He yells, if it's you, Jesus, let me step out. You got me. There's all these pictures going on. John just simply says, yep, we were in a massive storm. Jesus walked on the water. We ended up on the other side of the lake. Very matter-of-factly. That wasn't the part he was enamored with. The part he was enamored with, they got away. John's continual telling of the story is for one reason. John says it in one verse when he says, the purpose for which this book is written is so that you may believe. That's it. The, everything he's telling in here is for you to believe. Um, uh, Kyle, you probably heard me tell this story countless times. You can hear it again, I think. You know, it's, like a, it's a story that I keep thinking. When I look at... I look at my life and I keep thinking there are miracles in my life that happen all the time. There's a miracle that I got here, okay, right? There's there are plenty of miracles we have. But if you were to point back and say, yeah, this miracle is unexplainable. I have a few. And they never come in a timing in which you want. They just don't. So um, the story I'm thinking of, and again, the, the crowd used to go to the tree. You've heard, you heard the story when it happened. And it, what's interesting though is the man, um, there was a man, let me give you the background here. There was a, there's, a, there's a missionary we support. His name is Sam Marcinick. He's a, he has a baseball ministry in Alabama. Well, I knew Sam before he was a Christian. And I mean, Sam was just, a, I mean, he would say he was a functioning drunk. I mean, he would go out, play baseball, get lit, barely get back to the hotel room, fall into the closet, thinking that was his bed. And, and that's, Sam just, I mean, he had that kind of story. And so Sam got saved. And I'll never forget, I was helping Chaplin with a baseball team. And I would tell people, you know, Sam Marson, I got saved. And I had people at lunch, baseball players, are going to say, who? Sam? There's no way. That was the reaction. He was that kind of guy. There's no way. Well, now he's a missionary. Right? His wife's a doctor. She gave up her practice. And they go serve at a baseball field in a poor rural town in Alabama, have given up all their earthly treasures to go up there and do this. He was a first-round draft pick. If you grew up in Tampa, you knew the name Sam Marcinek. Well, Sam gets saved, and he has this childlike faith. You know what happens with kids. You know, they haven't become adulterized yet. They still believe in the possibilities of things. And Sam came to me and said, yeah, so I want to feed a bunch of poor people for Thanksgiving. And he did. I was like, wow, you're going to do it. So he, he wanted to do it again for, um, he did like 30 people. 
He said, I'm going to feed 200 families at Christmas. And they're like, wow, what are you, you going to do? Like, you know, we're going to cook food, take it down? And he goes, no, I'm going to, I want to take them the same meal I'm going to have. I mean, turkey, um, sweet potatoes or whatever. He went down dressing. He went down the whole line. Iced tea, everything. I want to take them a meal. And I want, every, I want each home to have it in this area. And so they found this area off North Boulevard by University of Tampa. And it was going to be a place where they got everybody together on New Year's Eve at 11 a.m. And he was going to present his testimony. He's mild, meek. I mean, this guy is a giant, right? His head would hit that tile up there, ceiling tile. Just the sweetest natured guy. And Sam said, uh, we're going to share and we have John Zeller, pastor friend of ours, share the gospel, tell him my testimony, and we're going to give him food. Now, I kick in because what every minister thinks, something has to be improved, Right? I mean, the dummy I was, I said, I'm going to bring toys. I'll get some toys. I mean, the girl I was dating at the time, she worked for a children's cancer society, and they literally had hundreds and hundreds of toys left over every Christmas. I said, I, I got all the toys you want. Well, we're getting closer and closer to the day, and she says, we don't have any toys. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have any toys? She goes, we don't have any toys. She goes, there's none. And I'm like, oh, no. And so I call Sam, like, Sam, I know I said toys and that. I, I don't have any. He goes, that's Okay. Either God will provide or it'll be all right. Don't worry about it. You know, he's, here I am, right? The minister calling in to, you know, to worry, and he's putting my worries at bay. Dece- okay, December 23rd comes. It's a Sunday. I'm at Idlewild where I was, and security calls me. Like, Jake, uh, these people had these leftover toys from this event. You want to come get them? And what I'm about to tell you is about the greatest moment of dullness I've ever had in my life. I walk over, see the toys, I'm like, this is cool. Anytime you mention you give a church something for free, we take it, you know? And you'll figure out what to do with it. But I look at it, I'm like, this is awesome. And I look over these two college students, and they were heading up a migrant ministry at the time. I looked at them and said, this, right here. This is an answer, man. Just take these toys. You'll find some kids in the migrant area that'll love it. Like, yeah, and they load it up. We get a church van. We load it up. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, uh, so that for Sam's thing? And just as, as soon as he said that, it just hit me. I had this epiphany. God just delivered in my lap on a silver platter. And if you're thinking I'm as dumb as I am, I'm dumber. And <laughs> on a silver platter gave me all the toys needed for this event. And I blew it. And I watched the van pull away, taking toys to kids that... And I remember thinking, I can't believe it. So I got on the phone and I called Sam. He said, you won't believe what just happened. His response? (laughs) That's pretty funny. He said, you know what? God has those toys intended for somebody else. People of simple faith, you really can't believe those things, can you? Now there's are consequences. I messed this up. This was the answer to the prayer. And it's done. Like, all right, thanks, Sam. I mean, depressed. I'm sitting there thinking, I can't believe I blew it. I had my word. Sam has hundreds of people are going to be in this place. It's Christmas Eve. It's 9 a.m. And my phone rings. And I answer it. And I'm like, hello. So is this J- Jacob Idle? I'll never forget. It said Idlewood. I said, Idlewood. He said, Yeah, yeah. So this is so and so in the United States Marine Corps. And my heart just froze because I'm thinking, it was during the invasion, right? 
I'm thinking, like, well, no, no, but I'm thinking it could be bad. Like, I don't know. Like, well, and I'm like, what, what, what is it? What is it? I said, um, he said, uh, what am I missing? What's that? Oh, thank you. They said, yeah, we need you. Yeah, thank you. It's funny. <laughs> Who said that? Ryan, thank you. No. Grace. So I'm thinking the worst in this phone call. And I'm like, man, what? Uh, wait, wait, wait. And, I, and I remember jump up out of my chair. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And he said, uh, um, he said, you, uh, we just, you wouldn't happen to be in any need of any toys. I'm like, what? I mean, I'm like, I'm confused. I'm looking at the phone, unknown number. It's the Marine Corps toys. It's Christmas. Like, this is one of those moments where I have died and an angel showing me what could have been, stuff like And I just said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, well, we just ran across a gentleman by the name of Brett, who, by the way, is Brett Smith, who's one of our elders here. I barely knew Brett back then. Knew his kids. Brett was at the gas station at Whitaker Road in 41, and they walk up to him like, bro, you don't know what we can do with all these toys. There was for the Toys for Tots program. And they'd given them away, and all the Marines wanted to go back home with their families. They had, they, they had given all the toys out. And Brett's like, well, I don't know, call this pastor from Idlewild. And that's how he called me. And I'm like, where are you? Yeah, Whitaker Road in 41. It's a mile and a half from my house. I'm like, I'll, I'll be right there. I said, I, I've got a truck. He says, um, I'd say, he says something along like, you're going to need more than that, or don't worry about that, or whatever. I get there, I pull up. Those of you in the military know what a deuce and a half is. It's the big, I mean, the big troop carrier, right? The tires are like, you know, come to here. I mean, they're huge. And I pull up, and this deuce and a half looks like a porcupine of everything from um, bicycles to hockey sticks. To, the whole thing is full of toys. And I get out, and I'm just thinking, I'll, get, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. You know, and I'm looking around, and I said, um, all right. Yeah, I said, uh, it's just me, but can, we, can you help me unload? He goes, oh, we can't unload it. I mean, you've got to take it all. I'm like, take it all? Like, he says, yeah. I said, well, I can't. He said, I, I said, can you follow me? And keep in mind, they're going to Gandhi, right? Gandhi Boulevard. Like, this is right on the way. I'm like, can, is anyone can just follow me? And he, he said, all right, yeah, yeah, we'll follow you. I get in my truck. I take off down Florida Avenue by the Apex Publix. I look, there's no truck. I turn back around and I come back, pull around. They're, they're going along. They're like, bro, we can't do more than 40 miles an hour. You got to slow down. I'm like, I'm sorry. They've got this light going. The Marine, they got these, these Santa Claus hats. People are waving, have like a reindeer in the front. And so um, it's before GPS, you know, so they're following me along. And then I, I, I stopped. I said, stop right here. Let me just go in there, this area. And I'm calling Sam like, I have toys. He's like, I can't hear you. He said, I have toys. So I, I get this area. It's 11.10, 11.15. Short member. He's going to present the gospel, this stuff. And I get there, and I'm like mouthing, we have toys. We have toys. Like, what? I said, we have toys. And um, he says, oh, yeah, for all the kids, we have toys. And all the kids were so excited. You know, like, oh, you know. And and. Some long line of Discord was, do you have enough? And I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> and I call in, open my flip phone. I'm like, 
I was Jack Bauer for a moment. I'm like, God, bring it in. Bring it in. And so you hear the gears. You come, you hear this. It sounds like a Sherman tank coming. And along comes this truck. And this truck pulls in. And everybody was just orderly getting lined and food. And they look. And they back up. And these guys get out. And they drop this gate. And no joke, toys just kind of bumbled out. And the kids just looked at it. And, you know, you watch the news and you think, oh, inner city, they're going to mob it. It's going to be a mob. It's no, it was the most orderly, grateful crowd. His kids stood in line. And one of them said, do you think I could have a basketball? I'm like, basketball? You have three basketballs. I'm putting the stuff in their hands. And I'm, this grandma's walking by and I'm putting stuff on her. And, and I'm like, go tell your family, your friends. And this, one's, this other kid said, can I grab this? And the housing director was there. And he's a believer. This guy says, he says, boy, get in there. It's like God's love as much as you want. And that kid just <laughs> dove in there and started grabbing. And they walked away. And I mean, we're picking up. Everything in the, the truck left, and I remember thinking, wow, God still moves. He still knows needs. He can still see a need and move in a way we never thought possible. Even when we think we closed our doors, God opens something. As miraculous as that story was in my life, and the likelihood is I don't think on my end I'll see another Marine Corps delivery of toys. But can I tell you one of the most amazing miracles that is happening right now in your life? And is that is that God knows your heart. And he has compassion. For all the times you thought you'd walk through a door and see judgment. It's compassion. For all the times you thought you blew it. It's compassion there. Even you. For all the times you didn't know how you would fix it. And he'd be tired of forgiving you. He has compassion. The greatest thought we can know is this. Every one of us hearts are known by him. We presume and guess the rest of us wrongly. And we diagnose ourselves incorrectly. Come into the place of God hungry. Come into the place of God expecting God to move. He knows your heart better than you do. And I pray that when you find what you find is his compassion. He's waiting. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the compassion that you have for us. Lord, there's no doubt when I think around this room just by the number of people here there are people that can identify what it's like to not want to approach you because they're afraid or they're ashamed God we walk into places wondering what we would do as God but we're not God we walk into your presence Lord and Father you know everything on our heart and everything on our mind
Now what is our encounter but compassion? Those kids didn't do anything to earn the toys and the people back in the story didn't do anything to earn to eat. But Father, not only did you provide, you gave them more than they could deal with. Father, when we walk away from your company, we recognize that we came in for survival, but you gave us life. We walk in with an expectation of just to make it. Father, and you've given us an abundance. Well, thank you for being the God that you are. We don't deserve you. It's hard for us to grasp you. But Father, collectively, we are thankful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.